association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. History for the Brave. Hello, everybody. This is Rob Kane. In this episode, we will explore whether Spartacus was a hero or a brigand. I want to know what you think. The title of this podcast is Stay for the Servile Wars or Visit Mother in Sperlonga. Imagine that you're a patrician living on a farm north of Mount Vesuvius around 71 BC. Wake up, master, a voice says, disturbing your sleep. You open your eyes. To the sound of birds coming in through the window, three slaves are waiting for you to rise. As soon as you see their eyes open, they step forward. One of them carries your farm tunic, one your sandals, the other a bowl of water so that you can wash your face. Another day, a perfect day. Same as always on the Villa Rustica. Your slave, Sinicus, is late. He runs into the room holding a sponge found off the coast of Sardinia. And it is expensive. It is for your bath. And rates a stern stare from a moor who holds the bowl of water that was to be the home for the sponge who has come from so far away. Sinicus has been late before and has been punished before. If one more day he cannot rise himself on time, he shall feel the cane of the overseer. You sit up in bed and allow the slaves to attend to their duties. The duties are basically you, and nothing else. One cleans your face, one helps you down your tunic, another brushes your teeth. Today you are going to inspect the southern olive grove. For other patrician farmers, this simply means making an appearance and letting the foreman explain the year of the harvest before heading back to the villa for a mid-morning refreshment. But for you, you will touch the soil and smell the olives yourself. You have read the works of Marcus Cato, and you have taken his advice to heart, and tomorrow you'll go into town to discuss hiring a gang of slaves from a nearby mine to bring in the harvest when the olives are ripe for the picking. The cost so far for your olives has been 40,000 denarii, which includes fine and slave. Cato's book... The Agricultura is your Bible, and you consult it regularly. After you have risen, washed, and allowed the slaves to dress you, a shout suddenly erupts from the hall. 
precepts your body servant, rushes in when you're having a conversation with your wife Livia. He shouts that the kitchen cook has run off. A kitchen slave is expensive. You swear an oath to the gods. This means more work. You are the master, which means you have to find him, return him to his kitchen. After all, his flesh belongs to you, and it is your duty to give him the proper punishment. You see, on your farm, in your time, and in your father's time, branding across the face is the one and only punishment for a slave stealing himself. One word is burned into the flesh. Thief. However, before you can do anything, the foreman, Abella, rides in from the south field, shouting all the way, and makes a startling announcement. Three slaves have run off! You swear another oath. This time to Pluto, the god of Hades. Your wife looks at you with disapproval, for your daughter and son have entered the room. Your son is ten and your daughter five. Your son Davius is fascinated why they should run away at all. He asks the question. You answer. Because they have no breeding. No sense. I feed them, clothe them, give them purpose, and I am repaid with portrayal. Abella urges you to give chase. He is a freed man, a Samite from the hills who gained his freedom over ten years ago. He stays with you because you pay him ten denarii a month, and watches the slaves with suspicion and rules them with an iron hand. This cannot be tolerated, he says coldly. You've seen that look before. The slaves have seen it before as well, especially behind a whip or a red-hot poker. He has captured runaway slaves and the slave household reels and quakes for months afterwards from the ramifications of one malcontent. A punishment may take an hour or a day, but the hard feelings remain for months, sometimes years. The boy wants to join you. He says it will be entertaining. Davius sees riding through the woods, hunting slaves like hunting rabbits. You know this would be good instruction for the boy, and when branding time comes for the captured cook, he will truly understand the worth of each slave as to the estate. This day will teach him how he might run his own villa rustica some day in the future. Your wife objects to taking the boy on such a dangerous task, but you override her and tell the boy to dress. Father, son, and foreman head for the stables, a proper combination. Davius must know how to deal with the slaves, and the boy is elated. When you reach the doors to the stable, you glance south and see something disturbing. Abellum and Davius see it too. A cloud of smoke is rising into the sky. What is going on? You shout to Abellum. He shakes his head. It is at this moment that the foreman's son, Piglet, a tall boy with curly black hair, rides in on a donkey. He points south. Father, the field is empty. The slaves are gone. Run off, all of them. Which way? Abellum asks. Towards the fire, past the olive groves that now burn. They head south over the horizon. Immediately you see 40,000 denarii melt and disappear like black scum in a smelter's pot. Father, Davia says, looking up at you, trying to get your attention. What is happening? Happening? My olive grove, my beautiful olive grove is in flames. Years of work. It took six years to develop the taste and color of the fruit from those trees. Six years gone in ten minutes. Father, please listen. What boy, you ask? What do you want? It's the Spartacus, he asks. The boy is smart. The tutor said so. But the idea of it being Spartacus is ridiculous. The rebel was at least a hundred miles away. A hundred miles might as well be on the other side of the world. 
How could the slaves at Mount Vesuvius be here a hundred miles north in just under a month? You turn to a bellum and say, Let's ride to the South Hill. We can see everything from there. On the hill, you see the burning olive grove and the road that runs south. This is the road that leads to Mount Vesuvius. The mountain hill is too far away to see from here, but you wonder with a hard walk, a forced march, could these slaves have, would they have, made it this far? You tell a bellum and your son to watch the horizon carefully and report anything that they might see. Your eyes are not what they used to be. It is your son that spots something in the distance first. Father, he shouts, a snake comes up the road. He is right. As it approaches, your eyesight becomes better. It is not a snake at all. You could see the black snake is really made up of individuals marching along the road. It is not a legion. You have seen legions in the distance. An army moves in segments. Blocks of men held tightly together with sword and shield for protection. These people move like fluid, like a swarm eating up whatever is in their way. The slave army reminds you how water moves, searching for the lowest valley. It meanders and flows, heading your way, like a flood that is unstoppable. On your horses now, back to the villa, now! Davius, to his credit, is first down the hill, back to the villa rustica. The overseer, damn his eyes, has forgotten his duties. He rides not to the home, but heads first east, away from the slave army. You make a note that if you ever see him again, you shall run him through with sword coward. You and your son ride to the gates of the Villa Rustica. The foreman's son asks about his father, and you wave him away. When he inquires again, you cuff him across the mouth. He does not ask again. You run into the atrium and shout for your wife. You tell her to gather the children, some food, a cloak, and whatever valuables she can carry. You run to your office and gather the money box. Good Davius, smart and intelligent Davius, has gone to get the horse cart so that the women can ride. You shout for assistance from precepts, but he does not come. You shout for more, but he does not come either. Where is everybody? You exit the villa and see that the courtyard is in turmoil. Slaves are standing on the wall, watching the fire as if a carnival approaches. You shout at several of them to help you, but they stand transfixed at the approaching army that they see in the distance. Never had they seen so many people in one place. You scale the wall and look too, and your mouth drops open in shock. You expect to see the wheat fields and flames, but instead you see thousands of little heads bobbing up and down as if floating on a sea, bodies hidden by the shafts of wheat blowing in the summer wind. You panic. You head back to the open door of the villa and see your son helping your mother and daughter into the back of the horse cart. Good boy, intelligent lad. As you head towards the cart, something catches your eye. You see a man talking to a group of slaves by the fountain. The thing is, you don't recognize him. He whispers to the slaves. He leans close to them. His eyes look over his shoulders as if he is telling them secrets. You have made it your business to know every slave that you purchase, to know them on sight and by name. You stop and begin to walk in his direction. He does not look like a field hand. He has a thick neck, massive arms, and plenty of meat on him in the stomach and thighs. He turns to meet you, and in his left hand, you see a sword. It is a gladiator, a spy. He is telling the slaves to run, to join Spartacus, the brigand and the monster.
You look back at the group of slaves standing behind the intruder. They are your people who you fed and clothed. It is then you see something curious. Your slaves, your property, are smiling. They are expecting to witness your death. Father, the boy shouts, we are ready. There is urgency in his voice. The boy appears at your side and taking your hand leads you away from the gladiator as if he knew what the future held if you took another step. The gladiator does not pursue. He goes back to the crowd of slaves and makes a gesture as if to say, Ah, such a pity. You hear the slaves chuckle, and your neck burns with hatred. Amor and precepts walk by towards the gladiator. They stop for a moment and give you a bow, a false bow, overly done, overly dramatic. In a moment they will be free. In a moment when Spartacus reaches the gates of the Villa Rustica, Amor and Precepts will be master and you will be the slave. Your son in that moment leads you away by the hand and he has saved your life. You get on the cart, your wife and daughter behind you. Your son rides the white pony. You head south towards the river. There is a villa of a good friend. Petronius is his name. A good friend. He will take you in. As you leave the villa, the Villa Rustica that has been in your family for over 20 generations, you suddenly feel the slap of something against the back of your neck. Your nose is filled with the smell of manure. Someone has thrown a clump of shit at you. The other slaves take up the game. Manure flies at you from all angles. A Villa Rustica has plenty of shit. Your wife and daughter scream. Your son grits his teeth and puts his pony into a trot to escape the filth. You flick the reins and speed the two horses to the gate to head to the safety of the road. These were the people that you fed, that you clothed and nursed through sickness. Without you, they would have been dead. You ride to a hill that overlooks the Villa Rustica. You stop on the crest and look back. No one has torched the villa. Thank the gods. You breathe a sigh of relief. You see the slaves dancing in the center court. You see slaves on the walls watching as a massive horde of nameless faces enter and defile the estate that has provided nothing but joy for your family. You see your chairs, clothes, and find plates of gold and silver being carried off. You see the food stores being raided. They are locusts. Nothing more. Father, your son shouts, we must go to Rome. You shake your head. We go to Petronius. He's just 20 miles up there, down the road. No, father, the boy says. The locusts will follow. We must go to Rome. We must escape the monster Spartacus. No barbarians will ever breach the Severian gate. Let's go to Rome, he begs. You look at your son with joy. Fine boy. Intelligent boy. Rome. We go to Rome, you say, as if you thought of it yourself. You flick the reins and go north. You have been listening to Ancient Rome Refocused. And now for the next exciting segment with your host, Rob Kane. Spartacus is back. I mean really back. Star Z Productions, a New Zealand company, offers a sexier Spartacus. Naked sexy men... Naked sexy women, violence, blood, and gore. Everything the Romans liked. And they did like that stuff. Served up for modern audiences who seemed to like that stuff as well. 
many men would you kill to hold your wife again? I would kill them all. Gladiator does not fear death. Gladiator's virtues extend beyond the arena. As lovers, they are said to be ravenous beasts. Make him do it again. You can see the show on cable or download it off of iTunes. You want action, raw and undiluted? This is for you. A man must accept his fate or be destroyed by it. The show is pretty good. The situations seem real, and I am surprised how the gladiators are quite thrilled to be gladiators. They have the same attitude as an army infantry platoon. Third platoon is the best! Could be easily translated into Capua Ludus Rules. This is a little different from the movie Spartacus, which starred Kirk Douglas in the 60s. The gladiators in this movie have more of a stoic attitude. It's kind of like more of a prisoner of war attitude where you display no emotion no matter what you see for you don't want to stand out keep your emotions in check remain quiet and hope that they don't pick you out from a crowd I tend to think that this is a more accurate portrayal for these men were forced into this life they were not volunteers and I found this portrayal more realistic and considering this was filmed in the 1960s, you can sure bet that some of them in real life were prisoners of war, just 20 years after the war in Europe and the Pacific. Hollywood did a film about him, and the Russians liked him so much they even wrote a ballet about him. The Bolshoi Ballet has a performance in 1955 that was put to film. You can catch snippets of it on YouTube. Now look, I'm not really a big fan of ballet. I never really gotten into it, except for the ballet Romeo and Juliet. And in that one, there was a lot of sword fighting going on. I mean, you can't blame me. Sword play and dancing somehow just fit together. And in the Bolshoi Ballet production of Spartacus, or Spartak, has dancing Roman legions and a slave revolt with soldiers leaping around the stage. You just can't beat that for spectacle. Spartacus stands out as a righteous character no matter what your political ilk. So who was he? Well, by all accounts, nobody really knows. He was never captured. He was killed in the, in the final battle. And his body was never identified. So how do we know he even existed? What we do know was that he was in captivity around 73 BC in a gladiatorial school near modern Capua before he escaped. It is said that he was a Thracian. Now, was he a Thracian from Thrace or was he something else? I mean, are we talking about the, uh, the place uh, in, uh, which was located in northeastern Greece and southwestern Bulgaria? Or is it because he fought in the Thracian style? Each gladiator had special weapons and fighting methods. A Thracian gladiator was lightly armored 
and carried a small round shield called a parma and a curved sword, the sica. The helmet on the top had a large griffin-shaped crest, and he wore leg guards and always fought against gladiators that were more heavily armored. What do we really know about him? Only that he caused a major disruption in the Roman Republic. My problem is try to get across to you what kind of disruption it was. At the beginning of the podcast, I played out a little drama on what it would be like to be a landowner fleeing in front of the slave army. Now, many lost their estates and property. Towns no longer felt safe. The transport of goods was certainly in question. Displaced people fled to Rome, basically to hide behind its walls. There must have been feeling that the natural order had been disrupted. Slaves and masters had a rather intimate relationship. Suspicions more than likely ran rampant through the cities and the countryside. Now, what if, near Mount Rainier in Washington State, the Seattle Seahawks fled their training camp and took off towards the nearby mountain? What if they were joined by migrant workers, plumbers, hotel workers, and associated laborers where they made camp? What if local police departments started to receive reports that the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks was leading raids down into the town for supplies and weapons? The next thing you hear is that the National Guard has been called up and right now are camped in front of the mountain. So what if the next day you hear that the National Guard camp was attacked in the night? That the football team led the laborers down the side of the hill and overran the National Guard camp, killing the soldiers and taking their weapons? What would you think about the world? Would you be unsure and hesitant to leave home? Would you think that your society was beginning to unravel? Okay, okay, it sounds like something out of an alternate universe. But this is what basically played out at the foot of Mount Vesuvius in Rome at the beginning of the Third Servile War in ancient Italy. The only time I ever heard the term alternate universe is reading science fiction books. An example might be, what if the Japanese successfully invaded Hawaii? Something like that. Is the concept of a slave revolt so outlandish that we can't imagine it here in the United States? Well, I beg to differ. New York Slave Revolt, 1712. St. John's Slave Revolt, 1733. Stono Rebellion, 1739. New York Conspiracy, 1741. Gabriel Prosser Slave Revolt, 1800. Chatham Manor Slave Revolt, 1805. German Coast Uprising, 1811. George Boxley Slave Revolt, 1815. Denmark Vesey, 1822. Nat Turner Slave Revolt, 1831. Amistad Ship Revolt, 1839. Creole Ship Revolt, 1841. John Brown's Raid, 1859.
I wonder what song was sung in the name of Spartacus. I wonder what words were said about him as they sat around the fire. My uncle fought with him. He was crucified five miles outside Rome. My brother saw Spartacus. He told me what he looked like. All these memories are gone. Everything that is left has been written by the victors. Spartacus is a footnote and passing reference. No one can describe him. No one can say what happened to him. I wonder if slave masters forbid their households from saying his name. I wonder if writing his name was suppressed and washed off a wall if found in the morning. Interesting enough, except for John Brown's raid in Harper's Ferry, which was led by a white abolitionist, by the way, I have no memory ever studying any of the aforementioned slave revolts in my history classes as I was growing up in the 60s. I would like to say that Spartacus was a hero. I won't argue that he's certainly a legend, but I do have a few issues with him. Not because he led the revolt, not at all, but I do have issues on the direction it took. On the decision that was made when he stood at a crossroad and instead went what I consider the wrong way. There was a moment that Spartacus and his army stood in front of the Alps. Freedom was staring him and his companions in the face. The peaks of the Alps was the last hurdle that stood in their way to freedom. All they had to do was endure a month's march across the frozen peaks and march into Gaul. Yes, there was the possibility of starvation. Look at the problems Hannibal went through in his crossing. Though there were dangers associated in making a mountain crossing, none of them, not a single one, was equal to the dangers they already faced. They fought armies to get to this point. Death was a possibility in no matter what they did. Anyway, who would have caught them? Pompey? Pompey was in Hispania, modern-day Spain, fighting a Roman named Quintus Centorius, who was trying to set up his own little republic. Legions were engaged elsewhere off the peninsula. Think about it. Who was left in Rome to fight the monster Spartacus? Lucullus? The Roman consul was fighting a foreign war against Mithridates. There were no battle-hardened legions on the continent to stop them. Up to that point, the slave army had cut down every garrison, manable, and cohort thrown against them. The slave army was battle-hardened. The legions that were raised to stop them were not. At that time, it was the veteran soldier that decided the strength of an army. A legion was one thing, but a legion that saw battle and won was almost an unstoppable force. The most experienced legions were composed of veterans, and that what was lacking on the peninsula at that moment. The Roman soldiers that met Spartacus were all farm boys, unemployed citizens, or soldiers that had seen more time in the city of Rome doing ceremonial duties than drilling battle maneuvers. At that point, as they camped at the base of the Alps, that army had waded through everything Rome threw against them and won. He did not know the numbers of the dead. I doubt they had time to count, fight a battle, and then move on. He did not keep a running tally. All he knew was that his army was alive. It must have been a heady thing. It must have been almost intoxicating to go into battle against the Roman standard and to come out alive to win. The slave, any slave that breaks his or her chains and stands against the armies of his master and wins, 
must feel that their freedom had to have been ordained by the gods themselves. But let's imagine that you're standing at the foot of the Alps right now. Have you ever seen the Alps? Have you ever seen a mountain? Could it have been the sight of the mountain changed their minds? The Alps is one of the greatest mountain range systems of Europe, stretching from Austria and Slovenia in the east. It goes through Italy, Switzerland, Liechtenstein in Germany, and to France in the west. The highest mountain in the Alps is Mont Blanc, that stands at the incredible height of 15,774 feet on the Italian-French border. Now, I could make an argument that this is what turned the slave army back, that they took one look at this barrier and decided it was impossible. But I can't accept that argument. The Alps had been crossed going back to prehistoric times. There are depressions, lower areas in the mountains where people have been able to cross. There are valleys. The body of a 5,000-year-old prehistoric man was found in the Italian Alps, frozen in the ice. He did not die from the cold, or had fallen from a great height. He was murdered. But that proves people ascended into the peaks, competed and fought with each other. And around 218 BC, Hannibal crossed the Alps when he invaded Italy. Yes, he took considerable losses, but he did it just the same. So why didn't they go? Why didn't Spartacus leave with, his, with the slave army, with the people? It makes no sense. Freedom was just across the mountains, but instead of taking their possessions and forcing their pack animals up the mountain trails and heading into the mountain mist, they turned back. So why don't we turn the clock back and maybe we can get a clue what happened. And how do we know it happened? Well, there are a host of historians that wrote about this event. Plutarch, Appian, Sallust, Livy, Orsius all took Spartacus as a subject. Many of their accounts, way after the event, are only survived through the ages through fragmented and sketchy accounts. Our perception of Spartacus has been directly formed by the resurgence of interest in classical studies at various times in history and the imagination of artists, authors, playwrights, and movie directors that have depicted Spartacus in the heroic vein. So let's turn the clock back. Let's go back to where it all began. Just 400 days before, the slave army did not exist. The birth came at a gladiatorial school near Capua, owned by a man named Lentellus Batiatus. The school was a training camp where captured slaves, with potential, were taught how to fight with various weapons. One day, 80 gladiators seized cooking knives and anything that could be used as a weapon from the kitchen. You can imagine men rushing through the hallways out into the courtyard, carrying knives, chair legs, and pots that could be tossed or swung over the head. If a guard was overpowered, his weapon was added to the killing spree. These men didn't need weapons to kill someone. Their hands were used for killing. Guards could be strangled as easily as a knife in the belly. It was not an easy fight to escape. But these were men used to violence, trained for it, in fact and they broke through the stockade and they rushed out into the open air and out into the forest that surrounded Mount Vesuvius. 
think about it. Let's say that you are a gladiator and you just escaped from that place. For the first time in years, you are free. You're running through an open field towards the mountains. You're in a group. You know these men. At, at least you have trained with them, and it feels better to stay together than to separate. You originally came from a forest in another country. You don't even know the direction you would have to go to find it again. You hear talk amongst the others that they are heading up onto the slope of Mount Vesuvius. We can hunt there, a Thracian says. We can see for miles from that spot. If the Romans approach, we will know. You like that. It makes you happy to know that someone is thinking like a chieftain, thinking of the future. You follow him towards the mountain slope. The back of the Thracian will be your home. Some wagons are on the road heading for the ludus that you have just broken out of. The gladiators swarm over the wagons, running off the drivers and killing the few guards. And to your delight, the wagons contain weapons, new shiny swords and shields. You think to yourself as you watch him direct the others, as you watch the Thracian give orders. This Thracian has the favor of the goddess Fortuna. The lucky are always considered favored by the gods. A steady stream of slaves, farmhands and household slaves, join them from the villas and the estates surrounding the region. They were armed with anything they could grab, kitchen and farming equipment, rakes and hoes added to the armament of this small army. The army of Spartacus began to grow. Plutarch writes, First then, routing those that came out of Capua against them, and thus procuring a quantity of proper soldiers' arms, they gladly threw away their own as barbarous and dishonorable. End of quote. Three thousand Roman militia had been organized under the command of Claudius Glaber to deal what the Romans considered a, well, minor event. The militia was for suppressing riots and scattering small groups of gangs in the city streets of Rome. This was not a legion. This was not even an army. They were men that knocked heads and pushed their way through crowds. Rather than sending a legion, Rome sent fire spotters and crowd control. The Roman commander used his militia to block the only road up the face of Vesuvius, and thinking the slaves were trapped, he had his command settle in for the night. They would starve them out and pick them off as they came down from the heights. A legion, a proper legion, would have constructed a fortification around their camp. Look, it was standard SOP, standard operating procedure of that time. But these were slaves. A few pickets around the camp would be enough. Yes, nothing to worry about. Yes, go to sleep and bring my wine in the morning. Post the guards. Spartacus struck back using the following principles of war. Offensive operations, surprise, and maneuver. The slave army, using vines that grew on the slopes, fashioned crude ladders and climbed down from the cliffside of the mountain, and then came at the camp from a different direction than expected. The camp was easily overrun. Throats were slit while men slept, and thus were spared the panic from waking up into a night filled with shouts and screams and men running out at you under the cover of darkness. Literally a nightmare. The Spartacus army was now armed, heavily armed with state-of-the-art equipment provided by their enemies. Every sword, helmet, breastplate is taken away to the base camp. Nothing is wasted and nothing beats success. Their numbers grew to 40,000. 
Two legions of militia under the command of Praetor Publius Verinius was dispatched from Rome. Unfortunately, his command suffered from illness brought on by a damp autumn, but they were sent anyway, for it was an emergency. If it was you in the Senate, what would you do? You just got word, by messenger, that the soldiers that were sent to destroy the slaves have all been killed. You have to make a decision. You have to decide what to do next, especially when you come to the realization that there is nothing that stands between the slave army and Rome. Anyway, at this point, you are thinking of your own skin rather than the protection of the city. You send what you have, and you send it quickly. This was an army composed of volunteer citizens, an army quickly formed, a stopgap. Something to throw at the enemy until the professional armies can be brought to bear. But the weather was awful that time of year. Most in the ranks were ill, which added to the poor morale. Spartacus easily discovered their advance column and destroyed over 2,000 soldiers. To make matters worse, the Roman commander split his forces. At a camp in a local bath near Herculaneum, Roman soldiers were attacked and slaughtered. Verinius trailed Spartacus to the town of Lucania, where, instead of seeing a rabble army on the battlefield waiting for them, instead they saw battle formations. This brings up an interesting point. How does a slave army become trained in battlefield tactics? One would suppose there would be one gigantic rabble, a crowd ready to throw themselves at you. The solution is simple. What is called in the U.S. Army, train the trainer. One gladiator teaches a group who goes off to teach their own group, and so on and so on, until the force has the same tactics and doctrine. So imagine that you are a sword carrier in this legion, sent to face the slaves. You expected that this would be easy, days chasing down people in the forest like chasing rabbits or one big jolly boar hunt. But now in front of you is what looks like a trained army, drawn up in a tight battle formation. The men shout at their officers. I thought we were fighting slaves. What's going on? Some men refused to advance. Others fled. But a battle took place anyway. Total chaos. Shield and sword clash. Shouts, screams, the smell of blood. The Roman line buckles and their eagles taken. And the taking of a legion's eagles is the ultimate humiliation. The eagle is the standard of the fighting force equal to the flags carried by 18th century armies. One British regiment records the exploit of a standard-bearer who had both arms sliced off by French cavalry and, as he bled out, still fought to keep the colors erect and flying during the battle. This is the same veneration that was shown to the eagles. They were kept like a statue of a god, placed where all could see where the army camped. Spartacus, upon marching north, destroyed a Roman corps under a Gaius Thurinius, a tenth principle of war should be morale, for their numbers grew again. They were now at 70,000. The winter of 73 to 72 BC was used for training, arming, and equipping their growing army. Their recruits came from slaves in areas that they raided, like Nola, Nusiria, Thirai, and Metapontum. Their numbers grew to 140,000. By the end of 73 BC, the slave army had withstood every Roman threat that was placed against them. 
But it was then that the slave army made a mistake by ignoring the following principle of war, unity of command. Unity of command states, at all levels of war, employment of military forces in a manner that masses combat power toward a common objective requires unity of command and unity of effort. Unity of command means that all the forces are under one responsible commander. It requires a single commander with the requisite authority to direct all forces in pursuit of a unified purpose. You have to understand that the slave army was probably not a homogeneous group. Slaves came from all over the world and was probably composed of many nations and languages. Germans and Gauls were led by another commander, a Gaul called Crixus. You have to imagine that bloodlines and language divided loyalties. To keep such a group together must have been difficult, and commonality had to be found. Well, everyone hated the Romans, and booty was distributed equally. Hatred and prize money was the glue that held them together. In the histories, other leaders are named. An army does not always have to run on the Roman model. Organizations don't always have to have one leader. Names such as Animius, Genicus and Gastus may have had their own followers. So I ask you a question. Could the slave army of Spartacus have been a combination of armies bound together by language or geography? Either way, managing this army must have been a Herculean task. The intention of Spartacus to head north and over the Alps must have been known, especially when the army began to head in that direction. The easy pickings of the small towns and estates that were open to attack must have felt to many as lost opportunities. Spartacus wanted to lead the slaves over the Alps. Crixus wanted to plunder the open countryside. A portion of the army peeled off and headed south. It is recorded in 72 BC that the Senate dispatched a pair of consular legions under the command of Gellius Publicola and Latulus Claudinius. Consular legions are a big deal. Think about this. One legion consists of 4,200 soldiers and 300 horsemen. What marched out to meet Spartacus, more or less, was 8,400 soldiers and 600 horsemen. We are not just talking about militia, but two full legions trained in combat. Now, I just talked to you about numbers. What is a legion really? A legion is a series of moving walls, shields locked, with the teeth of their short swords to come at you between each shield, from above, from below, to stab you in the belly, in the face, to hamstring you. A legion is cavalry horsemen in the hundreds to come at you from the right and the left and to harass you and cut you down if you run. Crixus and his command of 30,000 were methodically destroyed at Mount Garganus by the smaller force which speaks of the strength of a legion, numbers don't always count. Training, tactics, determination, and agility can overcome any larger force. Two-thirds of the slave army was cut down. I don't say that so casually. Try to wrap your head around the fact that 30,000 died in one battle. In the north, the army of Lentulus stands in the way of Spartacus. And coming up from behind is the legion of Gellius, fresh from destroying the army of Crixus, moving up to catch Spartacus and put him in a vice. He's doomed, right? No. 
The slave army defeated the Lentulus army, turned on its axis, and routed the legions coming up from their rear. Try to imagine fighting a battle like that in your front, and then upon finishing, turning that massive bulk of men and equipment on its axis to turn south to face another army. Anyway, it was not just soldiers, but it was women and children. It was their possessions. It was the plunder that they had gathered. This was not just an army. This was a nation on foot. What was left of the great consular legions fell back to Rome, and the commanders, who somehow were still living, were relieved of command. The historian Plutarch claims that Spartacus continued to a region called Mutina, which is modern Moderna. An army of 10,000 soldiers led by the governor of the Alpine Gaul met Spartacus in the field and was also defeated. So we are now back at the beginning. Spartacus is at the Alps, and escape is now possible. All he has to do is give the order, and they will send the mountain passes and are prepared to disappear into the wilds of Gaul. Remember, Caesar has yet to conquer that region. He has yet to write, Gaul is divided into three parts. So, what was Spartacus waiting for? The way was clear. Nothing could stop him. The only obstacle was the unknown. The mountains that reached up into the sky before them was nothing. When compared to the approximately 80,000 soldiers they had already defeated in battle. So why didn't they just get out of Italy? Why didn't they go? I'll tell you why. Greed and plunder. Put yourself in their place. Your slave army has just defeated more than six legions, cohorts, and militias, and has raided the countryside an untold number of villages and country estates, bringing in untold riches. Slaves who owned nothing, not even themselves, shared equally in the booty and the plunder. The gold, the silver, the plates and cups are carried with them. They see the results of the risk pile up and transported on the donkey's back. Just a year or two before, you knew nothing of arms. You ran away one night when you saw the slave army passing your master's villa on the road. You dropped your hoe and just left to follow the large crowd of men, women, and children that streamed by. Two days later, they were teaching you how to hold a sword, how to parry and cut. A gladiator was your trainer, a big man with a large smile and winning ways. For the first time, you ate your fill and you slept late. And one day, you were given five coins that was found in a raid. The first coins you ever owned, and now it's not the Roman that is feared, it is you. You and your thousands of friends that burn the Roman's villa, take his goods, and defeat the army that is sent against you. And so far, you and your friends have not experienced defeat. I'll tell you why they didn't leave. The pickings were good. What has happened to tell you otherwise? John Kenneth Galbraith, one of America's most famous economists, said... All successful revolutions are the kicking in of a rotting door. This was not a revolution, and the door was not rotten. All the hardened, successful legions were fighting elsewhere. The door only needed to be shut, and the man who shut the door was Marcus Licinius Crassus. He was the richest man in Rome, and had the influence to field an army big enough to defeat Spartacus with money out of his own pocket. This was the age of private armies. Soldiers at this point owned more to the general than they owed to the state. It would be Crassus and the return of the legions from overseas that would eventually lead to the slave army's defeat. 
Did Spartacus think that he would end slavery? No, this was 72 BC, and much of the slave army was composed of tribes that were not beyond having their own slaves. The Thracians owned slaves, the Gauls and Celts were not beyond owning slaves either. Watch the 1963 movie with Kirk Douglas. You might get the idea that the issue was slavery and slavery alone. But remember, this was 72 BC. Slavery was an accepted practice. Americans and Western classical scholars, table your thoughts that this was the Spartacus of freedom and democracy. Former Soviets, table your thoughts that this was the hero of the proletariat. The Spartacus slave army was a series of tribesmen trying to carve out their own empire like the heroes of mythology. After all, everything that happened up to this point did nothing but shatter the Roman myth of invincibility. The slave army must have been drunk with success. Army after army fell to their advance. Town after town was destroyed and they looted countless country estates. The army of Spartacus did not think they could be stopped. They must have felt blessed by the gods. Yes, 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 Crixus and his army fell, but maybe, as humans do, his failure was rationalized as due to his bullheadedness. And he was punished by the gods for not following Spartacus, who so far was the favorite of the goddess Fortuna. But the mountains now were in front of them, and this was the only escape route by land left open to them. Yet, they turned back. Oh, I don't think the decision came easy. A historian said that Spartacus was convinced by remaining Germans in his camp to head back into Italy. I can imagine the scene. Crowds around campfires arguing, to go or to stay. Leaders of the slave army making appeals. Men standing on top of tree stumps or rocks shouting out to faces in the dark that this was their moment to escape. Others shouting out that this was their moment to fall back upon the Romans and take more. Did these people hate the Romans? Years of humiliation and slavery said they did. A Roman slave was purposely used up like a machine. His or her body either dried up behind the plow or to shrivel up in the mine. Some slaves had the only purpose to stand hours in the hall waiting to be called, a piece of furniture, an ornament to take a cup, clean a plate, or to be used up for the master's sexual gratification. Years they stood in that hall, slowly aging, slowly becoming more bent and bored until their emotions were as absent as the emotions of a chair or table. The hours are long under the slave collar. Under Spartacus, the few years of freedom must have sped by in a blink. Fights would have broken out. Men looked at the booty taken from the country estates. The gold, silver, and coin taken from the small towns that fell from their advance, must have sparkled in the firelight. I can even see the Gauls complaining that Crixus would have been alive if Spartacus had allowed the army to return to the south whole, together, in one command. I can see them playing upon his conscience and his feelings for Crixus, who now routed at the base of Mount Garganus. The Alps sit, as if the gods themselves placed them there. They rise up, a wall of unmovable rock, as large and tall as Mount Olympus, as tall as Mount Ararat. In such places, gods reside. The people look south, back down 
the Italian peninsula to the green rolling hills that go off into the distance. It's an easy march that way than across the mountains. An easy march, yes, yes, the men would say. We march back south and take more. Maybe a chant picks up in the night, and men and women fight on what to do next. Some point towards the mountains, some point south towards the plains of the peninsula. They shout at each other, fist fights, sword fights, and a wrestling match break out in place of verbal argument. Tempers run high. People point the direction they wish to go. These people did not speak in one voice. Only in battle they seemed to move in unison. But during decisions, the making of decisions are loud and boisterous affairs. A fragment of a manuscript tells us of an earlier disagreement, written by the historian Sallust, who lived closest to the real events, so the words bear weight. Note, the translator filled in some words in the fragment of parchment to give it meaning. Quote, it seems to others, and to Spartacus, that they should not wander aimlessly around lest they be hemmed in on all sides and slaughtered to the last man. Therefore, it was necessary to leave the place as quickly as possible. A few of the slaves were prudent men and had free and noble minds, praised his advice, and held what they ought to do, and what Spartacus suggested. Some slaves, stupid and foolishly, had confidence in the large numbers who were flooding in to join their movement and in their own ferocity, while others shamefully forgot all about returning to their homelands. But the vast majority of the fugitives, because of their servile nature, thought of nothing but blood and booty. End quote. Maybe even Spartacus addressed the crowd, do you think? North or south, he shouted his question to the thousands of many lands, many languages, and many gods. And in the morning, they marched south. It was the wrong choice. Several armies were returning from overseas to take care of them, to annihilate them. Commanded by Crassus the Rich and Pompey the Great, it was definitely the wrong choice, for they would be caught between armies. Pirates would be paid to get them off the peninsula, but pirates are pirates and the money was taken. They tended to ferry their numbers across the strait to Sicily, and there start a revolt amongst the slaves on the same island of the previous servile wars. But with no ships, they were trapped on land, and the armies of Crassus pressed further and further down the peninsula to cut, cut, cut them off. These armies were trained, lethal, and were more scared of Crassus, their commander, more than the threat of Spartacus. Rome was closing the door. Sometimes a leader abides by the decision of those he leads, but in this case, it was the wrong choice. The door closed, but that's another story. While we listen to some music, uh, was there a decision that you faced that would have changed your life? Was there a mountain range that, if you took the risk to cross, would have saved you and led you to a new life? Think about it, and I'll be right back with another book off my shelf.
Today, I'd like to recommend a book that no one in the 1950s would touch. In fact, every publisher that wanted to print it mysteriously changed their minds. The author, Howard Fast, suddenly discovered what was really going on. The FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, in fact, was threatening publishing companies who had any interest in printing the book. You see, it was the time of the blacklist, and Mr. Fast was on it. If you've ever heard of the blacklist, the name is exactly what it means. If you are blacklisted, you do not have a chance of being published, writing a script in Hollywood, directing or getting the part you wanted. It was a sledgehammer by which Congress at the time used to get you to reveal the political leanings of your friends. At that time, there was a massive campaign to root out communists. Fass had been to prison for refusing to cooperate with the House Committee on Un-American Activities. He refused to hand over a list of the supporters of the Joint Anti-Fascist Refugee Committee. So, Howard Fass did something brave. He published it himself and sold over 40,000 copies in hardcover. When the time of the blacklist was over, sales of the book numbered into the millions. I'm a huge fan of the movie, and I can't help but talk about the book and the movie in the same breath, for it was Kirk Douglas that convinced Universal to make it into a film. The name of the book? Spartacus. By the way, you got to see the gladiatorial bout near the beginning of the film. Three pairs are forced to fight, and two of the pairs are seen through the eyes of Spartacus as he watches them fight through the bars of the cage. You see, he's waiting for his turn in the arena, and the camera only shows snippets of the sword play, much of it blocked by the bars that impede his view. This is a must-see. To get insight where Mr. Fast is coming from, let's see what he had to say about the book. Mr. Fast writes, We know almost nothing of who Spartacus was or where he came from. The many loved and who loved him were all slain, and no one in his cause ever put one word down concerning him which survived. The historians of patrician Rome reconstructed him according to their needs. I have tried to keep him alive in the terms of the logic of history which belongs to the working class and its allies. End of quote. I fully understand there is a political bent to Mr. Fast and his work. One can see it in the prose, but it does not take away whether this is a great story or not. It is beautifully written. The story of Spartacus is told mostly from other people's eyes. At the beginning of, of the book, Spartacus is already dead, and we get the story of Spartacus through piecemeal snippets, looping back and forth in time to try to paint a picture of who or what the man was. To Howard Fast, the events of 71 to 73 BC is a class struggle colored in political nuances. Here's a small excerpt from the book so you can get an idea of what I'm talking about. May we rest, O mistress, O mistress, whispered the pace-setter of Helena's litter when they came to a halt before the crucifix. He was a Spaniard, and his Latin was broken and wary. Of course, said Helena, who was only twenty-three, but already of strong opinion, as all the women of her family were, and she despised senseless cruelty toward animals, whether slave or beast. End of quote. This last line, she despised senseless cruelty towards animals, whether slave or beast, says it all what she thought of those who labored for her. I felt a thrill down my spine in the descriptions of battle, especially the observations of David, the Jewish gladiator. He looks upon Spartacus as an Odysseus and vows never to leave his side. The following is from the novel. Once they are alone, 
they are fighting for their lives. Then a hundred men come to their help. David looks at Spartacus, and through the blood and sweat, the Thracian is grinning. What a fight, he cries. What a fight this is, David. Will we live to see the sun rise in a fight like this? Who knows? He loves it, David thinks. What a strange man this is. Look how he loves battle. Look how he fights. He fights like a berserk. He fights like one of them out of the song he sings. End of quote. Every generation will interpret him in the light of their own bias. How do you see Spartacus? If you have any comments on the podcast, send me an email at rob at ancientromerefocused.org or go to the blog site http colon backslash backslash ancientromerefocused.org Remember, Ancient Rome Refocused is one word on the address. I want to thank Mike, Carlos, Debbie, and Judy for their emails. Also thanks to the following people who left comments on the blog, Aquilius Strings Gold and Jane. To my good friends Alma, Julia, Natalia, and Becky, thanks for the encouragement. Also thanks to the following people for leaving a critique on iTunes. Six zeros and four eights. That's the uh, name that he left. Lo Giafu, Clone Medic, and Bogart1980. Thanks for leaving your comments on iTunes, and I encourage the listening audience to do the same. We now have a group Facebook page. The group site is called Ancient Rome Refocused, of course. If you just want to leave a message for others, hang out, or give your view of the past, please use the site. We need members, so join up. It's time for the quote we have at the end of each podcast. This time, you won't have to hear me slaughter ancient Latin, for I'm going to give it to you straight in English. I know some of my listeners will appreciate it. Ready? This one is by Polypius, a Greek historian who lived from 205 B.C. to 118. Quote, Those that know how to win are much more numerous than those who know how to make proper use of their victories. End quote. If only Spartacus escaped over that mountain. I know at the end of each podcast, I usually leave a hint on what the subject of the next podcast is going to be, but I'm purposely leaving it out this time. I got something special in the hopper, and I'm afraid to jinx it. I think you'll be very pleased. See you next time on Ancient Rome Refocused.